Hello and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. We're so excited to be bringing you the news for the week again, back on our normal program schedule. Yes, back on schedule, exciting things ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Starting off with some updates, the first one, as reported by the art newspaper, quote, Jean Raynell, a woman abstract expressionist who painted in stone, gets overdue recognition. As some of you may remember, we went to see the artist show at Eric Firestone Gallery right before we went to Colorado, and we absolutely loved it. Yes, and the art newspaper article kind of emphasizes that she was never really... um, She has never really been a big name, and her work has rarely been shown since her death in 1983 until now um and her estate was actually held by her extended family and kept in storage because of the weight and size of her works like they are very unconventional and like very heavy and hard to transport so that's why they were kept in storage for so long um but now that the gallery is like kind of representing her estate hopefully there will be more shows Yes, and the main takeaway from the article is that since Eric Firestone assumed representation of Raynell's estate in early September, which is so recent. Yeah, it's very recent. They now hope to make her known as an artist in her own right, and it's so well-deserved. Yeah, I think it's so kind of impressive that they did a show so soon after September, considering like it hasn't really been that long and like with all of the delays of the pandemic and things like that. Like, they really did a great job. That's such a great point that I haven't even thought of yet. I mean, gallery shows are planned years in advance. So the fact that they were able to fit this in is kind of incredible. And it's truly one of my favorite gallery shows we've seen. I really loved it. Yep. And everyone should go see it. Um, We're really happy it's getting such good press and that people loved it as much as we did. Yeah, we feel validated. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Our second update also comes to us from the art newspaper, where it was reported that, quote, pre-Columbian artifacts returned to Mexico by Arizona officials. So a week ago in one of our Thursday Top 5 episodes, we reported that Christie's Paris went ahead with the sale of pre-Columbian artifacts that the Mexican government claimed had been illegally acquired. Yeah, and there were actually two different lots of artifacts that had to be returned. The first one is a group of 267 items, which is a lot, that were confiscated by Customs and Border Patrol in October 2012. So basically, archaeologists were asked to examine the collection of like arrowheads, tools, and small stone carvings, and they were dated between 1,000 to 5,000 years old. And according to archaeologists, the objects were roughly around $124,000. And the second group of objects was actually housed at Arizona's Chandler Museum in the Phoenix suburbs. After the museum turned them over to the authorities, the grave goods were also studied by Mexican archaeologists and determined to be more than 1,500 years old and estimated to be worth between $26,100 and $45,700. Yeah, so it's definitely refreshing to see a headline where artifacts were returned to the rightful owners as they will now be exhibited at the Mexican Institute for Anthropology and History and like it's what Christie should have done or they should have at least done more research. I agree, and I'm so happy we can bring a more positive update to this story. Yes. Our first story today is about something that everyone seems to still be talking about, NFTs. It's like the headline that won't go away. (laughs) As reported by Art News, quote, NFTs are creating the opposite of everything they're meant to fix. 
So as you may remember, earlier this year, we reported that Christie's was going to host its first ever digital art auction. This single lot auction was a success as it sold the NFT work by artist people for $69 million, surpassing many auction records. And I think just like surpassing what most people thought it would go yes. for. However, as the art world is coming down from the NFT craze, a lot of the problems with this new form of art have started to come out. So NFTs were supposed to democratize the art world and make it more transparent and give artists new ways to earn money. But in the few days after the Christie's auction, they have proven to do the exact opposite. For example, the buyer for Beeple's work did not come forward and has only been given giving anonymous interviews which defeats the transparency aspect of nfts he also acquired his wealth to pay for the specific work by trading other nfts and the biggest problem with this buyer is that he paid with soft money in this case cryptocurrency yeah and what our news is arguing is that cryptocurrency is highly volatile and there is speculation that the buyer for people might be actually able to resell the work for a hundred times what he paid for it, which then in turn means that people like the original artist ends up losing since he won't get any of the profits of the secondary sale. There's also speculation that the buyer already has a collection of NFTs that amount to around $7 billion, which is insane to think about. Yeah, so the bottom line is that the sale of NFTs is actually replicating many of the problems that the art world without digital art already had. And of course, like the astronomical prices might also be creating a bubble that will at some point just inevitably inevitably burst since it's just like not sustainable. It's not sustainable at all. And it's just so wild. Yes. <laughs> and lastly, the NFT craze has unleashed a bizarre wave of copyright theft where anonymous people have been taking the tweets and memes created by others or in more than one art world case, the work of Banksy, and minting them as NFTs to sell. Yeah, which is, of course, so problematic since the whole point of NFTs is that they provide authenticity and give artists um, the autonomy of their work. So, like, Banksy could just, like, have autonomy over his works, but if other people are minting his works as NFTs, then, like, he loses all of his authority. So I honestly really just don't see this lasting, mm -hmm. and I think people are now quest at first there was so much excitement about yeah. it that everyone wanted to get in on it and mm -hmm. now I think people are becoming more yeah wary. it's like fizzling out there was even an article I think on Artnet that examined each one of the squares that mm -hmm. made up people's work and it was very critical it did not highlight the yeah work. I think also I googled people just out of curiosity because mm -hmm. I wanted to know like what was his background right and He's like from South Carolina and a lot of the work he does looks like anime and like some of the um but like in a weird way like you know like the cartoons you like in TV when you were little that are like yeah. kind of like roughly done I don't know they looked very weird I didn't really like it and it's I think not that my was like style. it's not and I think like that was part of what the article was criticizing just like it's I don't Michelangelo know. yeah <laughs> but even though like a lot of people are very wary of this new type of art. Sotheby's did announce this week that they are partnering with NFT artist Pack for their first digital auction. But in my opinion, it just kind of feels like they didn't want to let Christie's have all the credit. And it's something that they're doing in response to what Christie's just did. Could not agree more. I think they might have been even more weary than Christie's, but yeah. they don't want to be left out of this narrative because the auction houses are so competitive with each I agree. other. But I think in some instances, it's just like, better to take a stance like a hard stance and be like sorry we're not doing that especially 
I don't know, you would think that with all the negativity coming out in the last couple of days, like they would be like, oh, you know what? Like, we're going to let Christie's just do this. Like, I really just don't think it's the next big thing. No, I think it's the time to take a step back and see how this plays out with Christie's and yeah. let them kind of be the guinea pig of the situation. Especially when everyone is saying like NFTs are for artists to like gain authority. And like, if it's really true that the people work is going to stand for a hundred times what it was paid for at Christie's and like right. it literally is doing the opposite of helping artists out so like why wouldn't they just like really take a step back and like reevaluate and like I don't know I'm also interested to see how this affects more like up-and-coming artists mm-hmm. who are maybe trying to get into NFTs if this is gonna put a stop to that yeah we shall see it's still very interesting and very new and we will definitely keep an eye out for more stories like this our second story comes to us from Artnet which reported that, quote, early in her career, Yayo Kusama gave her doctor 11 artworks for free medical care. Now they could fetch $14 million at auction. So the 11 works that Kusama gave to her doctor in exchange for medical care will be up for auction this spring. The collection of works, some of which have never been publicly seen, belong to the Japanese surgeon Teru Hirose, a longtime friend of the artist who died in 2019 at the age of 93. The collection consists of three paintings and eight works on paper, and it is expected to bring in $8.8 million to $14 million during a special single owner sale at Bonham's, New York, on May 12th. Um, the works are super special because they are perfect examples of Kusama's early works, They express many features and themes which she would continue to explore and develop throughout her career. The most notable works are a pair of crimson red river paintings from 1960. Each features Kusama's signature infinity net motif and they are titled respectively Mississippi River and Hudson River. Each is estimated to be between 3 million to 5 million. When Kusama emigrated from Japan in 1957, she brought with her around 2,000 works on paper, including the eight works that she gave to the doctor. And the story is actually really cute because he also emigrated around the same time and settled in the Bronx. And he was just one of the few surgeons in New York who could speak Japanese at the time. I love this story so much. I think it's everyone's dream to meet an unknown artist, be given works, put them aside, Mm -hmm. and then have them be worth millions. Yes. And Kusama first sought the doctor's treatment in 1960, which he performed pro bono. And as a thank you, she gifted him the works of art and then they became friends. So it really was just so lucky. Yeah, so lucky. I feel like Kusama is always on the news, but I feel like this spring particularly, she's been like very present here in New York. There's a lot of anticipation for her show at the Botanical Garden, which is opening in April. I'm so excited. We're definitely going to go and see it. So yes. stay tuned for that Monday Chatter check-in. <laughs> but I think it's up through October. Mm-hmm. So if everyone has a long time. To yes, get long, long and time. See it. <laughs> Maybe we'll see it multiple times. Perhaps. <laughs> On Monday, the Berlin State Museums revealed that the Artist Foundation plans to permanently loan the works to the Museum of the 20th Century, which still doesn't really exist. It's so funny. The museum is still under construction and there hasn't been a set date for when it will be open to the public because construction started in 2019. But I imagine that with the pandemic, original plans have been delayed. I feel like all construction has just been indefinitely delayed and everyone's just okay with it. Especially in Europe, since like museums have barely even started reopening. And they just got shut down again. Yeah, and like there's a whole vaccine mess, so. 
Yes, but going back to the paintings, they are a four-part series titled Birkenau from 2014. The title refers to a World War II-era concentration camp. The dark paintings are based on photographs of the camp, and they are abstract. Richter made them using a squeegee that pulled paint across his canvases, so they are very unique. Something very interesting about them is that the 100 works can never enter the market, and that was Richter's stipulation. Apparently, the reason behind this is that they are very deep and emotional paintings about a very serious topic, and he didn't want them to sell for like millions of dollars and just like have people profiting of, of pain in a way. I love that. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. Some of the paintings in this group of 100 were actually part of Richter's blockbuster exhibition at the Met Breuer, which we didn't get to see because it closed just nine days at the start of the pandemic. So yeah. a full year ago. Yes. Oh, my God. Wild. Almost to the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I remember it like the show opened the night before we went to the Purim Ball at the Jewish Museum, which was one of our last big outings. Yes. Um, some of our friends were talking about it while we were at the ball and how they went to the opening and how great it was. So we were very jealous, but hopefully we can go to the Berlin to see them. Maybe we'll be allowed to travel. <laughs> but they are not in their permanent home yet. They went on view on Tuesday in a presentation at the National Gallery in Berlin, where they appear alongside the photographs upon which they are based. It's like my favorite thing to be yes. able to see the process and mm-hmm. see photographs that paintings were based off of. I, I agree. love it. I would love to see these paintings like this. And I hope that it, when they are exhibited in like their permanent home, they are exhibited with the photographs because I feel like it makes such a big difference. It's so important to understanding the context. Yeah, I think that's painting. why people hate contemporary art. Like that's 100%. one of the reasons why, because they don't understand it. But like having the photographs next to them, I think makes such a big impact and really drive home the point of what the paintings are about and it's also great press for the new museum that's opening yes like I wouldn't have it's known so about special it. no me either <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's bad <laughs> our fourth story comes to us courtesy of the art newspaper where it was revealed that quote how a grasshopper got stuck leaving its mark in van gogh's painting on a summer's day in provence Van Gogh's painting from 1889 titled Olive Trees is at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, Missouri, and is among the first French pictures to be featured in the museum's new online catalog in which it's the subject of a 28-page study. So when Van Gogh agreed to move to the asylum just outside of San Remy de Provence in May 1889, after mutilating his ear, which was like his most famous doing. What he's Um, most known for? He made two conditions. As his brother Theo told the asylum director, Van Gogh should have at least half a liter of wine with his meals and the freedom to paint outside the institution. It's like not a bad life. A month after arriving, he was allowed outside the asylum walls and immediately discovered the ancient olive groves. He was really struck by their twisted trunks and glimmering leaves, and he painted the work that resides in the Kansas City Museum today. Using a powerful microscope, conservators discover the head and hind leg of a grasshopper in the paint of the foreground of the painting, just to the right of the center. 
So it is hardly visible to the naked eye and there was no disturbance to the pain, which would have occurred if a live insect had got stuck. So it was presumably dead on arrival. Like maybe the wind just like blew yeah, it. Dark, you know. but so interesting. Yes, very interesting. But it is suspected that because the area was so windy yeah. the art and the artist was painting outside, it would have been blown into the work before that section of paint completely dried. dried mm-hmm. Hence the grasshopper just got stuck. Yeah. And adding or supporting this hypothesis hypothesis researchers also found plant material which remains unidentified blown into an area of blue paint in a separate part of the canvas that's wild. so this was definitely an issue yeah and you might be wondering how vingo didn't notice this disturbance but olive trees is painted in his typical thick impasto technique so the dead insect just added a little more bulk to the picture of the surface and he might have just missed it right like the paint was so heavily layered yeah. that a little bit of texture was just like part of yeah. the work <laughs> And Olive Trees was bought for the Nelson Atkins Museum in 1932 from New York's Duran Rural Gallery the year before it opened to visitors. So it was only the second Van Gogh to enter a U.S. museum. So it's like a very special painting. Yeah, very historical. Yeah, and some other exciting news is that the work has now been promised for two major exhibitions, both of which will be shown in the U.S., so first, there's Van Gogh and the Olive Groves, which is scheduled for the Dallas Museum of Art in October of 2021, so this year, mm-hmm. all the way through February of 2022. Obviously, COVID-19 allowing, although Texas is so open, I don't really see this being Not a problem. Happening. Yeah, I don't think it'll be a problem. The painting will also play a starring role in Van Gogh in America at the Detroit Institute of Arts in October 2022. So hopefully some of our listeners, if not us, will get the chance to see the work in person. I Mm -hmm. feel like it's going to be a really fun game of I Spy now, like trying to find the grasshopper in the work. Yeah, it's like the monk painting we talked about and how it has a little inscription. I hope they like add to the plaque or make something so people know that it's there because it's so cute. It is really cute. A little dark, but cute. (laughs) No, it is cute. (laughs) The fifth and final headline of the week is from the art newspaper, which reported, quote, Art Basel UBS report, global art market shrinks by almost a quarter to 50.1 billion during COVID-19 crisis. Findings of the latest art market report, which is published as a collaboration between Art Basel and UBS, found that the global art and antique sales shrank by 22% to $50.1 billion in 2020, the biggest dip since the 2009 recession when sales totaled $39.5 billion. However, it's not as bad because they expected there to be a 30 to 40% drop in a year where the art market literally came to a halt. Yeah, and as our report points out, in 2009, in the fallout from the global financial crisis, the number of billionaires worldwide fell by 30% and their wealth plummeted 45%. And in 2020, the number of billionaires rose 7% and their wealth grew 32% over the past year. So as the article points out, although it might not be what people want to hear in general, the rich have gotten richer and this has been beneficial for the art market. Yeah, in fact, 66% of those surveyed reported that the pandemic had increased their interest in collecting. This was perhaps like the most interesting to me. And I think that it might be the result of the fact that so many other luxuries such as travel, have become much more difficult during the pandemic and people are spending so much time at home with you their belongings. You be looking at nice things. Exactly. Yeah. Like you might notice an empty wall. Yeah. <laughs> Another interesting fact is that the millennial high net worth um, 
for collectors were the highest spenders in 2020 with 30% having spent over 1 million versus 17% of boomers. And perhaps not unexpected, online sales have doubled in value from 2019 Mm -hmm. to 2020 and accounted for a quarter of overall transactions. However, and this was a little bit surprising to me, online viewing rooms, so OVRs, actually struggled to perform and only accounted for 9% of dealers' incomes, whereas you would think because everyone made such a big deal about their OVRs, especially at the start of the pandemic, that it would have accounted for a much higher percentage of sales. So I agree with you. It is a little surprising, but at the same time, like we both hated OVRs. So I presume a lot of people felt the same way. Like it was a common consensus that they suck. (laughs) Like Like, honestly, the word OVR is something I never want to hear again. It's a trigger (laughs) word now. Yes. But in some other sad news, a report found that out of 365 fares planned globally for 2020, 61% were canceled to no one's surprise. And the future prognosis is mixed as only 64% of high network network individuals said they would be ready to attend local events in the first six months of 2021. Another interesting fact shared in the report in regards to employment is that in the gallery sector, it fell 5%. In the auction sector, it fell 2%. But employment at the top tier auction houses is estimated to have fallen by 13%. So when you hear about layoffs at like Sotheby's and Christie's, it was more than that 2% in the auction sector. I think these like corporations realized that they didn't need as much manpower as they had and it had nothing to do with how they were performing as like businesses you know like yes they were just like wow we really did not need those like 30 interns like we can be fine with five or even departments that had multiple like admins they yeah. realized that oh one, one admin can, can do, do all the exactly. work so I don't really think it was like there, there's no correlation like of course in some institutions they had to fire people just because they didn't have enough Mm -hmm. money but I think in institutions that are purely focused on sales like it didn't really have to do that much with their performance especially I feel like at galleries where people were going to work in person more so they had to be socially distanced it's like oh we don't need three people sitting at the front desk exactly So despite this, just 1% of galleries have closed as a result of the pandemic, although it is also suggested that those most at risk of closure were unlikely to have participated in the survey, which can skew the data. Yeah. And the article also ended on a really interesting note by sharing that digital innovations could make it more and more difficult to keep tabs on the art market, which is always so opaque. Yeah. And I think this ties in really nicely to the NFT discussion we had earlier where as things go online, like, is it going to be harder to track? Yeah. Maybe. There's already, it's already so murky, as you Mm -hmm. say. It's, like, very opaque. And I just, yeah, I think, like, these online transactions just make it so much harder to, like, figure out. And this is how you end up in a nobler type of situation. Which is everyone's (laughs) biggest fear. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, but I think this is it for the... Yes, for our five headlines (laughs) of the week. But we do have an emerging story, which is brought to you by Yahoo News, which reported that, quote, a sauna in a museum welcomed to Tokyo's Team Lab. So the latest immersive experience thought up by Japan's popular Team Lab Collective is a massive tent housing sauna rooms and three immersive art installations, which were put up in an empty lot in Tokyo. A Team Lab director stated, quote, Nobody goes to an art museum in this fashion because art is art and a sauna is a sauna. But what we wanted to try is to combine and try to offer a very different experience and a very different experience of this art. 
the installations impact touch sound and even smells because they bring you roasted green green tea and white birch is being added to the saunas and i think what's so interesting about this is the idea that art can be viewed in different contexts i think often people are very uncomfortable in galleries or museums and like Mm -hmm. very stiff yeah and i think that can negatively impact your like enjoyment of the art but i think if you're in a sauna relaxing and like this artwork just kind of appears in front of you like maybe you might be more interested so i agree but i just can't picture myself being like oh i want to look at art i'm gonna go to this like museum that has a sauna like Like, they're two separate activities yeah also it just like freaks me out like who else is gonna be there i don't know I, that's i think my biggest issue with this like <laughs> like who kind of else is gonna be in this out, sauna yeah like i don't <laughs> know like it's I don't know. It feels weird. Also, the fact that it's just like in an empty lot. No, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I mean, I'm sure it's nice inside. Like, I'm sure they did a number to it. But no, I'm I'm sure. But it just like, I feel like tents in random parking lots right now just reminds me of COVID, like vaccines and like my first COVID test ever was in a tent in an empty lot, and it was so scary. So it's like I don't know. Like I just don't want to think of like a sauna in like an empty parking lot, and then you're seeing art. But it is for sure very interesting. I love this headline. I don't know if it's for us, but I think it is for a certain type of person. Yeah, I agree. Right. So I think this is it for the week. We're super excited for Monday, for this week's Monday Chatter Check-In. We have something very special to talk about that we've been actually hinting at in the podcast. So stay tuned for that. And if you haven't already, please remember to follow us on Instagram at Curated Chatter. Yes. Thank you. Bye.